Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 6 It seems to me that what, uh, the best way to look at this is to see that the poem is preparing for a major transformation. Uh, it's helpful for me to see it that way instead of saying what Dante is doing. The poem hardly ever does anything without Dante's permission. So I imagine Dante is very much aware of this uh, transformation uh, uh, prologue in a way. Uh, But regardless of what Dante's intentions were, uh, the poem itself is anticipating a major shift. Virgil is coming to the end of his work as Dante's father figure. The last sin of the seven deadly sins, the sin of lust, is to be purged. The poem is about to turn itself over to woman after having been led by a man for two cantos, uh, two uh, canticus. And Dante begins to undergo an enormous emotional transformation which will extend on to the end of the purgatorio and after. Well, as I wrestled with this, I I, uh, kept trying to uh, see something that would hold it together, and every time I s- thought I saw something, it would uh, come unglued again. And so I thought of this Chinese aphorism, which I read somewhere one time, which is that if the question is posed ceremoniously, the universe will answer. So then I s- stopped looking at the poem and started to think about ways of posing the question ceremoniously. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure I've come up with uh, that, although I have a couple of, I, I go to the poetry to try to do that, and I have a couple of uh, Theodore Rethke poems, which I would like to use as the ceremonial posing of the question that I think might be in these, in these cantos, t- uh, 25, 26, and 27. Uh, uh, the uh, Rethke poems I'm going to use are, they may be ceremonious, but they're also somewhat, uh, they're somewhat racy. Uh, in their language, in places, one of them I'm actually going to expurgate slightly to uh, uh, keep to our usual high standards. But in any case, um, I'd like to start with a Rethke poem, which is not strictly parallel, but at least uh, has some things in it which I think are implicit in Dante's work. Interestingly enough, by the way, Rethke was quite influenced by the Divine Comedy, so uh, whether there is any uh, intended parallel, I do not know, except this is from a longer poem of Rethke's, and this is a section of the poem entitled The Wall. And the big issue, of course, in these cantos uh, is the is passing through the wall of fire, which is the final wall. It's very much like another version of getting into heaven, as the gate in purgatory was. It's, an, it's a very, very important transformation moment in the poem. So Rescue 2 is concerned with the wall, and here's what he writes about it. A ghost comes out of the unconscious mind to grope my sill. It moans to be reborn. The figure at my back is not my friend. The hand upon my shoulder turns to horn. I found my father when I did my work, only to lose myself in this small dark. Though it reject dry borders of the scene, what sensual eye can keep an image pure, leaning across a sill to greet the dawn? A slow growth is a hard thing to endure. When figures out of obscure shadow rave, all sensual loves but dancing on a grave. Well, however he got there, he managed to weave together some of the themes in this part of the poem. The theme of rebirth, which is somewhat sublimated into the poem, but I think it's very much there and I'd like to talk about it. The question about um, the father. I found my father when I did my work. Dante is about to get his graduation papers from Virgil, his foster father, his spiritual father, and it is because he has done the work. And then the question about the sensual eye and the pure image. Can the sensual eye, does the sensual eye, what is the relationship between the sensual eye and the pure image? Uh, And that's something Dante asks almost directly in Canto 25. And then finally, the sense that all sensual loves but dancing on a grave. 
And those concerns haunt Dante's poem as much as they do Rethke's. Well, first of all, the question about moaning to be reborn. <clears throat> Dante says uh, in line 7, 8, and 9 of Canto 25, We made our way into a narrow gap, and one behind the other took the stairs so straight that climbers here must separate. Uh, they do this twice in these two cantos. They separate and go single file, one by one. Uh, it, it would seem over-labored to, to think of this as a birth canal, uh, and is over-labored to think of it as a birth canal, except in light of what comes in a few minutes. And what comes in a few minutes is a great long description of the birth process. And so I think we're justified in understanding a rebirth imagery as being implicit here. Well, so we have to go back to where I suppose Dante went uh, to get the springboard for his rebirth imagery, and that is to, the to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. There was one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a leading Jew, who came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we, do not, excuse me, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus answered, I tell you most solemnly, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, How can a man be born? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I tell you most solemnly, unless a man is born again through water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of course, Dante is about to enter, first of all, the earthly paradise, and then literally the kingdom of God. What is born, this is Jesus still answering Nicodemus, what is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised when I say, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it is going. And that is how it is with all who are born of the Spirit. Well, water, spirit, and wind, uh, we will get plenty of water and wind next week in Canto 28 and 29. But this week... The Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, was born of the Spirit is spirit, and, and certain confusions that uh, about the inner relationship between those two. And Dante asked about the inner relationship between those two, ostensibly in order to clear up something that happened in the realm of the, of the gluttons, which is where the, the uh, gluttons are still hungry. And Dante says, How can one grow lean where there is never need for nourishment? The body... They no longer have a body. How can they grow lean or be hungry? I think the question he's asking is, do hungers survive death? Do appetites, does appetites survive death? Or, in a larger sense, does desire have an ontological status? Or is it merely a, an ac one of the accidents attendant on the biological organism? Does it have some deeper status? Uh, or in Rethke's terms, what is the relationship between the sensual eye and pure image? Virgil takes a couple of uh, lame, uh, makes a couple of lame attempts to answer that question, and he, then he finally turns it over to Statius. But before we get to Statius's answer, I just want to speak here about something that's already going to begin to overlap, and that is this question of rebirth. Uh, it has been called being born again because it is analogous to the birth process. And Dante asked about the role of desire. So let's try to understand how that might relate to the whole rebirth symbolism or metaphor. In the West, and we have to, I think, for our purposes, think of Dante as the first modern Westerner. In the modern West... The midlife, the onset of the midlife rebirth crisis, the onset is not attended, attended by labor pains, but the onset of the rebirth crisis is an arousal. It's still, we're talking rebirth, we're just moving it back nine months plus a little. And for Dante too, the rebirth, it is still rebirth that is called for. But it begins with an arousal. And the question is, does that arousal have ultimate significance? So it is, in the first instance, the midlife crisis that is, that, that is heading for a rebirth 
if all goes well. In the first instance, is experienced not as a second birth, but as a second puberty. As an awakening of those of that excess libido in suddenly erupting in midlife, much like it did in the teenage years. Here, here it comes again, a second puberty. What are we going to do with that energy? And that's why Dante is so brilliant, as he was in the realm where the slothful were being purged, Dante brilliantly puts the siren there, the seductress, the fraudulent seductress in the level of sloth, and, and just by that juxtaposition real, reveals the whole nature of the thing. Likewise, in this realm where there is a heavy emphasis, although somewhat sublimated, on rebirth imagery, he puts that in the realm of lust because it is the energy that is awakened. It is that second puberty that supplies the energy for the rebirth as the first puberty supplies the energy for the whole biological procreative process. So what happens is Virgil can't really answer the question very well, primarily because he's, he's not privy to Aquinas' reinterpretation of Aristotle, but since he's not a Christian. Uh, but St- Statius apparently is, understands that, so he gets, the answer, he gets to answer the question. So what Statius gives is a sort of birds and bees story, laden with all the concerns of the, of, of the Middle, Middle Ages. Uh, namely, really what's at issue here is, is the birth of the soul and the destiny of the soul and all of that. But here, and, and this, is, this uh, was reasonably in, in concert with the science of the time, particularly because the science of the time was theoscience, you might say. Uh, Statius says it begins, first of all, you have to understand that the perfect blood does not all go into the veins. Some of it remains in the heart. And in the heart, it purifies itself. That which is not out there doing the business of the veins is in the heart, purifying itself. And then it's digested once again and goes into those organs, let's not talk about, he says where it is purified even more. He's ta- this is, by the way, this, the whole point of this is that it is from a highly masculine point of view. We're talking about what happens in the father, the fathering principle. This purified blood in the heart, which is not busy about the work of the veins, goes into the generative organs and is purified still further, losing even its color, and becomes the semen, but this is just blood, purified blood. That's, um, that's the understanding of this. And then it drips into the natural receptacle of another's blood. That's as antiseptic as one could get it, I guess. The two bloods mix, one ready to be passive and one active because a perfect place, the heart, prepared them. The active, having reached the passive, starts to work. So that's, a, that's the moment of conception is when the active and the passive touch each other. And there are about four or five overlays that are happening in this poem at one time. There's rebirth, there's a second puberty, there's the movement from Virgil to Beatrice, from the male to the female. Uh, all of that is happening. And one of the things that's happening is the classic medieval understanding of the transition between the active and the contemplative life. The active having reached the passive starts to work. The active labors, and then Stacia says to Dante, At this point, son, the power that had come from the begetter's heart unfolds and spreads that nature may see every limb perfected. So he's still emphasizing this as the father's role. And then he goes to talk about the heavenly father, the first mover, admires what is going on and breathes new spirits. Remember, uh, Jesus and John said this, the rebirth is of the spirit. He breathes a new spirit which draws all that is active in the fetus into its substance and becomes a soul that lives and feels and has self-consciousness, self-awareness, self-regard. It's the birth of self-consciousness. And then we skip the three score and ten and go immediately to death because we're really concerned about the destiny of the soul. We're just talking about what happens on either side of what we know about. At death, the soul divides from the flesh, 
the soul retains the divine qualities of intelligence, memory, and will. But it also retains, to make a long story short, it also retains its ardor, its desire, its longing. And this longing produces, forms, a kind of body which is the expression of the longing. Just as we are held fast by longings and other sentiments, our shade takes form. The Biancholi translation of that is, the shade assumes its image from desire. Well, I'm not going to try to get lost. There's too much else to talk about today. I don't want to get too lost in this material, except to say I think what's happening is this. The question is, are the appetites, the desires, the longings ontologically basic? ultimately, fundamentally basic, or are they merely biological or hormonal or at best psychological um, accidents? And the poem says they have ontological status. They survive the death. They help regenerate a sort of a body that lives on as as an embodiment of those longings. Well, so far, so good. So what we have is passion, ardor, desire, longing have a cosmic significance. And then we find that we're in the realm where lust must be purged. So there's a little bit of a, of a tension here between finding out that these desires are ultimately significant and finding out that we have to purge lust. We have to get beyond it. Almost as though all of that little course in obstetrics, medieval obstetrics, almost as though all of that was a prologue. Dante says, by now, this is line 109 of Canto 25, by now we'd reached the final turning. The final turning. And he finds that there are flames on the left and which are blowing out from the mountain and being blown back by the wind and, the, and a sheer... A precipice on the right. And Virgil says to him, now, and this is where we have to find out. We just found out that desire is holy, and now we have to find out why it is that lust is deadly. So Virgil says to him, on this terrace it is best to curb your eyes. The least distraction left or right can mean a step you will regret. Uh, and that's reminiscent of Rethke's question, can, sens- can the sensual eye keep an image pure? Uh, so I'd like to read another Rethke poem, which, and then comment upon it, and then come back to the question of lust. Uh, and this is the uh, amended poem. Uh, not amended, but uh, excerpted. Uh, I thought of this poem because of um, that line, by now we'd reached the final turning. The poem begins... Uh, in quotations there is no place to turn she said this poem is entitled The Sensualist there is no place to turn she said you have me pinned so close oh angel let me loose notice the calling of the angel Uh, the last two stanzas of the poem go like this my shoulders bitten even the uh, censored form is for adult audiences my shoulders bitten from your teeth What's that peculiar smell? No matter which one is beneath, each is an animal. The ghostly figure sucked its breath and shuddered toward the wall. Wrapped in the tattered robe of death, it tiptoed down the hall. Now, Jesus had told Nicodemus that this is a, it's the birth, it's a spiritual birth, not a fleshly birth. To be born of the Spirit. And notice when it is, no matter which one is beneath, each is an animal, end of quote. And then, the ghostly figure sucked its breath and shuddered toward the wall. Wrapped in the tattered robe of death, it tiptoed down the hall. Something has gone out. Quotations again, the last stanza. The bed itself begins to quake. I hate this sensual pin. My neck 
if not my heart, will break if we do this again. Then each fell back, limp as a sack, into the world of men. Because the Spirit tiptoed down the hall, wrapped in the robe of death. Well, the hope, the lover is addressed even in that manifestation of the of the lust is addressed as the angel and part of the disappointment of the poem is that they fell back into the world of men implying very strongly that the hope was they would fall somewhere else and that is because it carries with it the longings that bring one to this place carry with it transcendent uh, sense of things and it is if we could get past the lust part of it that that could be that that could remain a part of of the experience so at the very moment when dante is indicating and uh, giving an ontological status to our desire he is at that same moment saying you have to get rid of lust the lustful and canto i'm going just barely mention Canto 26 except we say we see the lustful they're in the fire there are the homosexuals coming one way the heterosexuals coming the other they stop briefly embrace with one of the little brief kiss and then go on and that's the, that's the way in which in other words what cures lust is love really he does however in the in 26 uh, meet Guido Guinazelli who he calls his father there's a lot of emphasis that's sub- sublimated in the text, but there's a lot of emphasis on father. The role of the father in that little biological story. And uh, Virgil is increasingly, as they go up the purgatorial mountain, referred to as father. My more than father, my dear father, over and over again. And now he meets, and he, Dante meets other father figures. And now he meets uh, Guido Guinazelli, and he refers to him as his father. And Guido, as almost as though to underscore this father theme, says to Dante, uh, 127 of Canto 26, Now, if you are so amply privileged that you will be admitted to the cloister where Christ is abbot of the college, then pray, say for me to him, a paternoster. Abbot comes from the Aramaic Abba, meaning father, and paternoster, of course, means our father. So he has been called Father, and he says, now if you get to the place where Christ is Father, say an Our Father for me. There's a lot of Father stuff going on, which is uh, which is um, a theme, I think, that Dante is, is going to use to conclude the role of, of Virgil. Canto 27 starts out with something, I don't want to over-interpret it, but I think it is something that one can see as almost a spiritual version of that of the story of uh, the the obstet- obstetrics story in Canto 25. Remember when Statius explained how it all starts, he says, "Well, there is blood in the heart that's more pure than the blood in the veins, and it is purified in the heart, and then the process begins, and it." refines further well this canto starts out talking about the place where the maker shed his blood referring to the blood of Christ and then in line 8 he hears the singing which is blessed are the pure in heart emphasis on the heart and the pureness of the heart and then the, the voice says holy souls you cannot move ahead unless the fire has stung you first enter the flames and don't be deaf to song you'll hear beyond. So this is Dante tipping his hand. There is a song you'll... This is Dante talking to his reader, really. The song, the next song you hear is going to help you understand what's happening. Okay. Shall we go to the song first, or shall we keep ourselves in suspense? Let's go to the song. The song is, Come, you blessed of my Father. Come, you blessed of my Father. Father, 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 come through the flames, listen to the song, come you blessed of my Father. As soon as Dante finds out he has to go through the flame, he said, I became like one who has been laid in the grave. Now, 
what's happening here is something like rebirth and something like conception. As far as I can tell. Something, it is the beginning of a rebirth process. So it has rebirth in it. But it is also like conception. And Dante says, I felt like, it felt like being in a grave. So in terms of the rebirth imagery, let me just touch on two things. T.S. Eliot in The Journey of the Magi. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. So birth and death. So at this moment, which is really the moment of Dante moving out of purgatory into another existence, he feels like he's been laid in the grave. And Virgil says to him, My son, though there may be suffering here, there is no death. But Virgil can't get Dante through the wall. He tries to talk him into it. I've never let you down before, have I? Stick your shirt tail in there and see if it burns. Nothing, nothing works. So he plays his trump card. He says, and this is uh, the tra- this is my own translation in a way. It's mostly Dorothy Sayers, but it, between Beatrice and you, there's this wall. He says, let me just be candid with you, Dante. Between Beatrice and you, there's this wall. And now Dante's ready to go. But, the, but notice the metaphor he uses. As at the name of Thisbe, Priamus, about to die, opened his eyes and saw her, when then the mulberry became blood red, so when my stubbornness had softened, I, hearing the name that's always flowering within my mind, turned to my knowing guide. So he uses this Thisbe and Primus as a metaphor for what happened to him. Thisbe and Primus is Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde. It's the story of love and death. It's the adolescent version of passionate romance. And I think that is an indication that Dante, what Virgil has had to do, Virgil has had to uh, compromise his principle. I can say it this way. He compromised his principle and said something to Dante that he knew Dante would misunderstand. Because Dante, well, the psyche always re- tends to repeat itself. Dante could only think of Beatrice in terms that he associated with his original experience of Beatrice. So, when he hears the name of Beatrice, he associates an adolescent image a, the death romanticism of, of Thisbe and Primus or Tristan and Isolde and Romeo and Juliet. And he even says as much because it, it goes on to say, at which he, this is Virgil, shook his head and said, teasingly, he said, and would you have us stay along this side? He smiled as one smiles at a child fruit has beguiled. Interestingly, Virgil has tricked him and what, he, what has he tricked him with? The Italian word, FOMO, is apple. He tricked him, and where are they going? They're going into the earthly paradise. He's getting him into earthly paradise using the same trick that Satan used to get Adam and Eve out. Now that is the brilliance of Dante. That is the brilliance of Dante. What, what Satan used to get you out, he uses to get you in. And what is it? The apple. Well, now what does the apple... I'm going to play fast and loose with this if you don't mind. The apple... Well, forget what the apple itself represents. Let me read to you what happens. Uh, this is sort of a cosmic version of the, of the hair of the dog that bit you, you know. <laughs> the, the... In... Milton's Paradise Lost, right after they eat, here's what happens to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, quote, fancy that they feel divinity within them breeding wings wherewith to scorn the earth. But that false fruit, far other operation first displayed, carnal desire inflaming, he on Eve began to cast lascivious eyes she him as wantonly repaid. 
And a short while after that, Adam says, let's play. And they have turned each other into things. So the result of the apple for, and by the way, as you know, Milton's writing a long time after Dante, but the result of the apple, you see, in this rendition, and it's, it's, ba- it's biblically based, but of course, Milton is nuancing it his own what. Result of the apple is carnal desire. And Dante is using, Dante and Virgil are using that to get Dante in, back in to earthly paradise. If that can be offered, and Dante goes for it immediately, he immediately steps into the place where lust is purged. So it is, it is leveraging that kind of libido, that kind of energy, that kind of desire and longing, and then, and then purging it of lust. And then what do you have? You, you have the beginning of the rebirth. So they go in single file again. There's another parallel to Canto 25. They go single file. Again, the reference on Father. My gentle Father, who would comfort me, kept talking as we walked of Beatrice, saying, I seem to see her eyes already. And then a voice sings out, Come you, blessed of my Father. It sang within a light that overcame me. I could not look at such intensity. The sun departs, it added. Evening comes. Don't stay your steps, but hurry on before the west grows dark. You will think that I have uh, lost my marbles. Perhaps I have, but I would like to suggest... First of all, by asking Dante's pardon, I would like to suggest that at least the poem, uh, well, I would like to suggest that there is a poetic orgasm at that moment. C- pardon, uh, forget, forget the possible pun in English. Come, you blessed of my father. And what happens to Dante is it sang within a light that overcame me. I could not look at such intensity. And then instantly the sun departs, it added, evening comes. Great relaxation. A great relaxation compared to then each fell back limp as a sack into the world of men. The little death. But you see, this passes through, the purges lust and falls instead into earthly paradise. Suddenly, everything becomes feminine. All of it is feminine. It is as though the masculine gathered itself up through the purgatorial journey and spent itself in that passage through lust. And there is Dante in the place of the feminine. Well, two striking things happen once Dante purges lust. One is that there's a strong... Uh, symbolic reference to the fact that his uh, his spiritual journey is incomplete. He likens himself to a goat, and Statius and Virgil to the to the shepherds. And uh, the same passage in the Gospel of Matthew, from which Dante took the song uh, "Come, you blessed of my Father," is the apocalyptic passage which speaks of the separation of the sheep from the goats, and the goats are the ones who who uh, who are uh, rejected. So Dante likens himself to one who still has something um, to um, atone for, and Beatrice will handle that for him in, uh, in short order. But also, and perhaps even more striking, it's after he gets through the place of purging of lust that he says, Sleep overcame me, sleep which often sees before it happens, what is yet to be. In other words, it's the time of uh, early morning sleep, which is prophetic dreaming time. And then he says, It was the hour, I think, when Cytheria, who always seems aflame with fires of love, first shines upon the mountains from the east. Cytheria is Venus, the goddess of love. So the sun has gone down, and now he immediately talks about the goddess of love appearing in the east. 
And this is after he has purged lust that the goddess of love appears. And he has the following dream. I seem to see a woman, both young and fair, along a plain she gathered flowers, and even as she sang she said, Whoever asked my name know that I am Leah, and I apply my lovely hands to fashion a garland of the flowers I have gathered. To find a light within this mirror I adorn myself, whereas my sister Rachel never deserts her mirror. There she sits all day. She longs to see her fair eyes gazing, as I to see my hands adorning long. She is content with singing, I with labor. Well, what can we say about this dream? It is prophetic. It is prophetic of the two women that Dante is going to meet shortly, uh, Matilda and Beatrice. When Dante sees Matilda, she is gathering flowers, as is Leah. The, Leah and Rachel represent the, the... This is from the story, the story of Jacob, uh, the daughters of Laban, when Jacob goes to win his wife. Uh, Rachel is the beautiful one. Uh, Leah is the... Uh, is the one f uh, that he must marry first, and then he gets to marry Rachel. Rachel is his heart's desire. Leah is the one who is fruitful, who bears his children. Uh, so, th so what has happened in the medieval time is that this, uh, these two have become an allegory for the active and the contemplative life. So that, so that Leah is the active life, and and Rachel is the contemplative life. Notice here we have a commingling of the active and contemplative, which is the version, if we go back to this story of the, the, the story of uh, the first birth, it talked about the two bloods mix, one ready to be passive and one active because a perfect place, the heart prepared them. Well, here we have an echo of that here. And now it's not active-passive, it's active-contemplative. But notice, notice they are both female, and also notice that there is some, uh, they anticipate Matilda and Rachel, but they don't quite come up to Matilda and Rachel, I think. In the first story of birth, he said that when the soul actually quickens, it, it lives and feels and has self-consciousness. In this story here, in this dream, both Rachel and Leah are concerned with the mirror, with looking into the mirror. So they are at the stage, I think, of self-reflection. And uh, in that sense, they are the antitype or the anticipation of what happens with Beatrice and Matilda later on. And then the culmination of Virgil's work with Dante is the great sort of graduation ceremony, which has, I think, tremendous poetry even in translation. When all the staircase lay beneath us and we'd reached the highest step, then Virgil set his eyes insistently on me and said, My son, you've seen the temporary fire and the eternal fire. You have reached the place past which my powers cannot see. I've brought you here through intellect and art. From now on, let your pleasure be your guide. It's wonderful. Your pleasure can now be your guide. Since you have purged all of these sinful inclinations... You are past the steep and past the narrow paths. Uh, in Charity's translation, he says, let your impulses uh, lead you. You don't have to suspect them anymore. And then there's a kind of welcoming home, almost, ceremony. Look at the sun that shines upon your brow. Look at the grasses, flowers, the shrubs born here spontaneously of the earth. It's, uh, it's see the place for the first time. See it without that, without laying on to it, this thing about uh, how's it going to serve me? What's in it for me? If you could, the, you know, earthly paradise is just the earth regarded by someone who no longer has this thing going on about what's it going to do for me. That's all fine, but what's in it for me? If that could be purged, then it's earthly paradise. Among them, Virgil goes on, among them 
you can rest or walk until the coming of the glad and lovely eyes, those eyes that weeping sent me to your side, and then the culmination. Await no further word or sign from me. Your will is free, erect, and whole. To act against that will would be to err. Therefore I crown and mitre you over yourself. And the crown, of course, so what's happened is the will is no longer has to be suspect, no longer cluttered. It's as though his, his moral character is completely formed. And now he must go on to learn um, of the great paradoxes of existence in the Paradiso. Uh, but he has a, his, his consciousness is no longer cluttered with a lot of confusion. And so he, he's, he's capable of learning. And the a beautiful image of crown and mitre, those are the two sources of authority in Dante's world. The mitre is the bishop's hat. So he says, now you have the crown and the mitre. You don't need all, you know, so much, in the, particularly in the early purgatory, there was a lot of talk about how important it was to have these external authorities. And, of course, it is important. Uh, but for the person, for the individual who comes to this place, then that person wears the crown and mitre himself or herself. It's just a, it, the, the other crown and mitre is there to help us make this process. But once this is achieved, you're free. Freedom. Love and do what you will, said St. Augustine. And Dante doesn't know it. But these are the last words Virgil says to him. This is he, He's been told in a way. That Virgil says, Await no further word or sign from me. This is the last you're going to get. Your will is free, erect, and whole. Well, if you jump in quickly to Canto 28 uh, and you're plunging on through... You might not notice uh, until you get down to line 22 uh, that a theme is being uh, echoed fairly subtly. And that, in, in line 22 says this, Now though my steps were slow, I'd gone so far into the ancient forest that I could no longer see where I had made my entry. And at that point there's a little echo in the mind of, an, of, a, of another forest in which he could no longer find uh, his orientation. And then you realize something about earthly paradise into which Dante has just entered. And that is that it is not a garden. It's a forest. And then you go back up and read the first lines of Canto 28, and they read this way, Now keen to search within, to search around that forest, dense, alive with green, divine, which tempered the new day before my eyes. So what we've done in the course of the Inferno and the Purgatorio is we've gone from forest to forest, or perhaps we have re-experienced the forest. Now, I would not want to impose on Dante my theory that heaven and hell are the same place, experienced by two different kinds of consciousness, uh, but there is at least a hint of that in Dante's work. He has to have them separate and string them out in order for his narrative to have that kind of contrast. But he does say how now, he says, now, now, keen to search within and to search around that forest. And the forest, of course, is dense, alive with green, divine. All, all of the things the other forest was not. The other forest was dark, alienating, uh, haunting, etc., etc., cold. And this forest is green, dense, alive, divine. Richard Wilbur said in one of his poems, But ceremony never did conceal, save to the silly eye, which all allows, how much we are the woods we wander in. And so to some extent, the dark wood that Dante began and this wood at the end of the Purgatorio can be seen as the same place, discovered in its reality for the first time.
after the work has been done of the Inferno and the Purgatorio. This is the place where, quite literally, Dante comes to his senses, meaning comes to his senses. All five of them, or six or seven, I, what's the latest count on senses? Uh, but he comes to them all here, and he comes to them in a new way. Now, Virgil had told him that he can now trust all his senses, not only all his physical senses, but all his impulses. And so here he is with his, as, as if the work of the Purgatorio was to reawaken the senses so that they could experience the world, receive the mystery of the world in its essence without being perverted by too much self-regard and uh, too much uh, of this question about what's in it for me and so on and so forth. And without that, now Dante's senses are absolutely alive. Apropos of his reawakened senses, the first thing Dante experiences there that's, that strikes him, literally strikes him, is a gentle breeze. And uh, there's something about this breeze, even before he questions it's why it's there, there's something uh, strange and unique about this breeze. The way the Mandelbaum translation has it is this. Dante says, is it, is it, a, uh, it is a breeze, quote, which did not seem to vary within itself. I've read many translations of these lines, and um, I, I'm not an Italian uh, translator by any stretch of the imagination, but I would like to suggest with a f fair amount of confidence that the sense of these lines is this. What was strange about that wind is that it had motion without agitation. And I want to underscore that because I think that tells us something about the emotional I'm going to have a question about that word emotional later, but for now let's use it. It tells us something about the emotional condition of earthly paradise. It is to say it has motion without agitation. And Dante feels it to be an extraordinary kind of gentle breeze. And the second thing that he experiences experiences is a stream. There, at line 25, there I came upon a stream that blocked the path of my advance. Now, the path of his advance has been blocked a number of times. It was blocked the first time by the three snarling beasts who chased him down, uh, back down into the pit of that dark wood at the beginning of the inferno. It was blocked a second time at the gates of the Purgatorio by the angel with the flaming sword and the three steps. And it is blocked a third time by a, a little stream that is, guess what, three steps across. And again, if we overlay these and see this as a maturation of Dante's understanding of what it is that is blocking his way, he comes now, it's, he's come a long way, he's done his work, and his, the work is now that what was the snarling beast has become this gentle, clear, limpid stream. And the thing about the stream is that it hides no thing. Even though it, it is in the shade, uh, nothing can be hidden in there. Meaning, of course, you can see the, the bottom, but meaning metaphorically much more than that. Nothing can be hidden in this stream. And then we get this, the grand introduction to this, uh, save for Beatrice, the most marvelous creation of Dante's genius in this poem, perhaps, arguably at least. And that is Matilda. We find her name out later. I saw a solitary woman moving, singing, and gathering up flower on flower, the flowers that colored all her pathway. I... <clears throat> A lot has gone, a lot of ink has been spilled over the question of who this woman is. Uh, I would, uh, the for, I feel the strongest hint of any uh, anticipation of hers in uh, Dante's earlier writings is in the La Vita Nuova. And there's a story in La Vita Nuova 
Dante's first uh, major piece of writing, in which he says, I saw this woman coming down the street famous for her beauty. And her nickname, I'm paraphrasing, and her nickname was Spring, Primavera. He said, and then I noticed that there was a woman following her who was Beatrice. And then Love spoke to me, and Love said to me, she's called Spring because Spring comes first and then Summer. And, it, and, then, and then Love said to me, you know her, don't you? And her name is Giovanna. And Love said to me, the reason uh, her name is Giovanna is because that is the feminine name of John, and John is the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. End of transmission from the God of love, meaning, outrageously, that Beatrice is the feminine Christ. And this Giovanna, whose nickname was Spring, is the one who precedes her. This woman's name is not Giovanna nor Spring, except the word Primavera, the Spring, is not only, the word is not only said in her uh, regard, but everything about her is Spring. She is picking flowers. She is singing. It is that kind of preparing the way. So I would, uh, it's not particularly germane to what we're doing here, but I, I think it is germane in this sense, in that, what happened to Dante in his handful of encounters with Beatrice determined the course of his life. He never went beyond that. He always came back to it to understand it at a deeper level. It was the essential fact which he spent his life in the process of interpreting. So that it's germane in the sense that if Matilda can be uh, likened or reckoned to this this uh, Giovanna in La Vita Nuova, it's another instance of how Dante is reworking this theme, trying to get deeper and deeper into its implications. Let me read to you something from Sebastian Moore, and I think this will, this is, I, I'd like to read this as a commentary on the Inferno and the Purgatorio up to where Dante is here. Moore says this, It is the dynamite of desire for boundless bliss that we are afraid of. And this fear drives us into the arms of a smaller, self-made, self-marked, familiar world. Thus it is necessary to recognize not only that we have the desire for limitless happiness, but that this is as it should be. This is right. This is who and what we are. This is what life is all about. We have to reverse the basic tape so thoroughly that this causes reversal of the other moral tape. You could see there the confusions that could happen if there were not a carefully uh, programmed purgatorial uh, uh, tutorial on this. You see, you see how it works in there? It is such a reversal ontologically that it causes a, a reversal morally. And this is the thing Paul had to work with in the first church. He kept saying, we're free now. And then he had to come back and say, wait, this doesn't mean that, you're, that you can live a riotous life. You see, And it's that, uh, the ontological reversal which causes a moral reversal. And then one has to uh, sort that out a little bit. And the purgatorio is the place where that's being sorted out. And Sebastian Moore goes on, Now once we begin to get comfortable with this way of thinking, out, outlandish, as it is for our culture, we begin to see the world in a new way. And a very and excuse me, and very strange it all begins to look. For what kind of world is it in which the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of reality? And that's Dante at the end of the Purgatorio. Up until then, the pursuit of what he thought was happiness, because his sensibilities had been skewed by egocentricity or whatnot. What he, the pursuit of what he thought was happiness would have led him away from reality. But now that he has had the re-education on those points, it would lead him to reality. Dante still has some things to learn. Obviously, when we get to Beatrice, we'll see how much he has to learn. But there's something that I think is absolutely sublime in Canto 28... Uh, if we 
if we pay attention to it, one of my favorite parts of the whole Divine Comedy. I want to read a few passages and just reflect on what's being said here very subtly. Dante says to Matilda, line 49, You have reminded me of where and what just when her mother was deprived of her and she deprived of spring, Proserpina was. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to use Persephone. It works on my tongue a little better. Persephone is the Greek version of Proserpina. Uh, the, uh, to use the Greek names, this is the story of Persephone, who is out picking flowers one day, when Hades, the god of the underworld, comes up and abducts her and rapes her and takes her into the underworld. And her mother, in the Greek Demeter, in the Roman series, goes makes a trip to the underworld to get her back. And she and, and Hades have to have this, uh, they, they square off. And what comes of it is a compromise. Persephone will spend half the year in hell and half the year on earth, and that's why there are seasons. That's why there's the coming of the seasonal cycle. Okay. number of things about this statement. First of all, you, you remind me of that, he says. Deprived of spring. The word spring is primavera. Primavera means first, first truth. Now, if you want to know the difference between this garden and the first garden that Dante was in when in hell, it was it was deprived of spring in the sense of primavera, the first truth. We will really learn this a little bit later in uh, more detail. And it is that, I think it is this. Dante, when he first begins to write the Divine Comedy and is, as he admits, lost, it is because he has spent the last number of years involved, heavily involved, in uh, scholastic philosophy and, the only thing that could have been worse than that, Italian politics. <laughs> and what it, ha what it has deprived him of is this rich feminine connection, which was the truest thing he knew about his life. And it is that, that primavera, that first truth, that he had lost. It had, it had been abducted, and it left that otherwise paradisal wood, or potentially paradisal wood, a dark, lonely one. At least that's one possibility of seeing here. But there's more. When Dante, there, there is a little bit of, um, what's going on here is a little bit of, uh, it's like a, a, a Rorschach test. Um, he sees Matilda, uh, and it's as though the, the uh, psychiatrist says, uh, what's that remind you of, Dante? And first thing comes to your mind. Well, it reminds me of, uh, of, of when Persephone got ra uh, raped, I mean, uh, 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 I mean um, <clears throat> you see? And there's only two people standing there. One is Matilda and one's Dante. And it reminds him of when Persephone got raped. So the, so the psychiatrist says, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, that tells us something. <laughs> and Matilda, Matilda's really the psychiatrist here, says she lowered her eyes when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> this is so subtle and wonderful. She lowers her chaste eyes. It says chaste eyes. It's right. That's right in a way. The word is honesty, which means honest. It's the same word that was used earlier on in Canto 19 when the when the um, uh, siren, the, sedu the seductress, had to be uh, disproven as a fraud by this strange woman with the honest woman, honesta woman. And this is the same word, honesty. So now she's likened to that. She has honest eyes. But also it means chaste because it means modest. So she lowers her eyes and um, walks. Dante asks her to walk a little closer. She walks closer to the, to the little stream. Line 61. No sooner had she reached the point where that fair water's waves could barely bathe the grass than she gave me this gift lifting her eyes. Now, that's the second best translation I know of that line in English. Um, 
the first best is best because it's John Charity's taking liberties with that line. Charity, we're going to use the Charity translation when we do the Paradiso, and he does take liberties because he's, he has a rhyme scheme he's trying to make an appointment with, you know, in each in each set. But when he takes liberties, it's always because he understands the in, the the sense of the poem. Mandelbaum says she gave me this gift, lifting her eyes, and Charity translates that line. She raised her eyes and gave my soul a star. So she's, tr- she's trying to help Dante along. It starts out with rape, um, at least subliminally. You see, there's that element in it. So she lowers her eyes, walks a little closer, and then when she's ready, she looks up and looks him right in the eye. And then Dante says... I do not think a light so bright had shone beneath the lids of Venus when her son pierced her in extraordinary fashion. Well, let's see about this metaphor. This is a story of when Venus is shot by one of the arrows of Cupid or Amor, uh, mistakenly, and the next person she looks on is Adonis, and she falls wildly and passionately and erotically in love with Adonis. This is a metaphor having to do with passionate, erotic love. And Dante says, it seemed like Matilda felt that. You see, the metaphor says, her eyes looked like she was Venus having been shot by Cupid's arrow. So this looks for a moment as though the passionate love is being returned that tremendous, powerful uh, connection is now mutual. Dante himself, or I should say the poem, offers a mild corrective here, but it is the kind of corrective that you get in, in uh, Greek and Shakespearean drama, which is that the speaker doesn't understand the truth of what's being spoken. And Dante says, Erect along the farther bank, she smiled her hands entwining very-colored flowers, which that high land needing no seed engenders. There's another little hint here now. This is a place which needs no seed to engender. This is a place commensurate with the virgin birth. This is a place where the ultimate spiritual fruits can be conceived, can be the conception can be consummated with the eyes and the smiles. It needs no seed to bear fruit. A little hint here about a change that has that is obviously one Dante hadn't come to par on yet. You see, and then finally the the third the third metaphor, which is most wonderful and concludes it. First of all. He says, I was just separated by three steps. Imagine that. Anyway, he says, the river kept us just three steps apart. But even Hellespont, where Xerxes crossed a case that still curbs all men's arrogance, did not provoke more hatred in Leander when rough seas ran from Abydos to Sestos than hatred I bestowed upon that river when it refused to open. Well, we have to get another... Uh, take another look at the metaphor that comes to him, the, the, the third of the Rorschach test that he's taking on the situation. He says it was only three steps wide, but it was like the Hellespont, what is now the Dardanelles, the, this body of water. And what he associates with this body of water is two events. One is the Persian military commander, Xerxes, a great uh, contest between the Persians and the Greeks in the 5th century B.C., was settled at the at the Battle of Salamis, which is one of the great turning points of history, when the Persians were turned back. And the story is that Xerxes was, was drowned crossing the Hellespont, and Xerxes was the commander of the Persian forces. So the first reference to this body of water is that this is the body of water in which the infidel dies. It's just three steps wide, you see. But this is the body of water in which the infidel dies. That's baptismal water. It also reminded me, he said, it did not provoke more hatred in Leander when rough seas ran from Abydos to Sestos 
the point of this is Leander had a romance with Hero. And Leander, when the seas were calm, would swim the Hellespont to Harrow, and they would rendezvous for their romantic rendezvous, and and Leander would swim back. Uh, and Char- John Charity says many many poets have used this story to uh, to elaborate, and Charity makes the comment: uh, none of them uh, thought it wise to give Leander a rowboat. <laughs> well, in any case, uh, Leander is so passionate about Harrow that he's, he dares to swim the Hellespont in rough seas and drowns. Okay? Second thing about this water is that it drowns those who are, uh, who are wildly impassioned erotically. It is the, it is the place where the, ero- the purely erotic passion is drowned in some way. And it is the place in which the infidel is drowned in some way. And this is all by virtue of the Rorschach test for Dante. It simply reminds him of that because that's what's got to happen. But to really get the, the impact of this, we have to go back. I want to read the whole thing. And it, the river kept us just three steps apart, but even Hellespont, where Xerxes crossed, a case that still curbs all men's arrogance, did not provoke more hatred in Leander when rough seas ran from Abydos to Sestos, then hatred I bestowed upon that river when it refused to open. And Matilda said, you're new here, aren't you? (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) You're new here, aren't you? (laughs) So she says, she's very gentle. She says, but light to clear your intellect is in the psalm beginning Delectasi. Delectasi, she's speaking of Psalm 92, which begins this way. This is a modern English translation. I am happy, Yahweh, at what you have done, at your achievements, I joyfully exclaim. First of all, it is gratitude for what is. She said, let me try to help you, Dante. Here in earthly paradise, what's important is gratitude for what is. Because what is is God's handiwork. And you come from a world which is much more interested in what might be. But the hint, if you can take the hint, is delectasi, which is I delight in what is God's handiwork. So when you look across that little stream and see my eyes, you start thinking about something else. If you would stay with those eyes and celebrate what is, gratitude for what is, you would come to be at home here. This is a place where we celebrate what is, not not just what might be. The transformation of what is into what might be is how we've lost this place. 